this political coliseum, we slay the rising beast with the fateful sword of truth that transcends hypocrisy and censorship. It's time to unleash yourself from the tyrants of media propaganda on the America Out Loud Talk Radio Network. This is Unleashed, the political news hour. Welcome to Unleashed. This is today's political news hour with Dr. Ted Noel. I'm glad you could join me for a careful consideration of our common concerns. Democrats hate the English language. Their problem is simply that words have meaning and that creates problems for them. So they change the language to demonize their enemies. Donald Trump radically reduced the control that the federal government has over our lives, but has somehow become an authoritarian. He made a joke about it, but the left broke their funny bone long a time ago, and this time they claimed he was serious. But an authoritarian exercises control over the citizen. Based on the actual meaning of the word, Democrats are lying. Pure and simple. In fact, Democrats are trying to divert us from the truth, which is that their guy, Joe Biden, is the real authoritarian. Joe Biden has imposed multiple regulations restricting Americans from the everyday enjoyment of life. By shutting down the Keystone XL pipeline that Trump approved, hundreds of thousands of workers lost their jobs. Now he has blocked exports of natural gas again destroying jobs. When parents objected to radical actions by school boards, including concealing sexual assaults, Biden's FBI was tasked with not investigating the school board, but investigating the parents. Law-abiding citizens who simply wandered onto Capitol grounds in January 6th have been arrested by FBI SWAT teams and kept in solitary confinement without trial. Joe Biden is the authoritarian. It's his way or else. Of course, Corn Pop found out about that. Most of us find that the LGBTQ alphabet suit perversions are flat out revolting. But we wouldn't mind if those people just kept it in their own private places and away from us. But the left can't have people who actually think and live lives that they can't control. So we're required to let our children be exposed to transgender story hour. If your prepubertal child is having questions about sexuality, which most of them do, suddenly you're required to provide gender-affirming care, or the state will take your child away. Don't think I'm overstating this case. Montana is just the latest state to do this. The gender jackboots can't have people understand that adolescent sex questions are just growing pains, and almost all kids outgrow them. And they really can't let anyone know that the kids who are mutilated chemically and surgically have a suicide risk a whole lot higher than kids who simply grow up. On this line, the left insists that elective abortions are reproductive health care. Nothing could be further from the truth. 
As an anesthesiologist, I've been involved in every kind of surgical care, and elective abortions are surgical. Not one of the many obstetricians with whom I've had the pleasure to work would agree that elective abortions are healthcare. An abortion takes the life of a child. Somehow the left can't let us discuss that fact. Every abortion, and it doesn't matter whether it is an elective abortion or a spontaneous abortion, is the exact opposite of reproductive care. They all cancel reproduction. There are dozens of similar examples. Anytime a word has a real meaning that causes the left a problem, the left mangles it in a way to make us feel guilty or be afraid. And this is where Donald Trump comes back into the picture. The Donald campaigned on a promise to drain the swamp. And we have to admit that he did not get it done in large measure because he relied on experts who turned out to be part of the swamp. But the threat was very real. If Trump manages to somehow get back into the White House, he'd have nothing to lose. It's very likely that he would invoke Schedule F by executive order and then fire almost all bureaucrats who have been in policymaking positions. This would cripple the left in D.C. Even if a court ruled against him, all he'd have to do is revoke their security clearances and then they couldn't work. Or he could simply create new sections in various bureaucracies and eliminate the sections that they're in. And because their section no longer exists, they no longer have a job. Or on the extreme end, hey, we could uh, relocate your bureaucracy to Fairbanks, Alaska. That'll be a great place for you uh, guys in the Bureau of Fisheries. In short, he has no real limit on the options to wipe out, not reduce, whole bureaucracies. And this scares the hell out of them. Most government employees vote Democrat since the Democrats guarantee sinecures for life. Federal agencies never shrink. They just get more bloated and sclerotic. Real Americans see this every day. We laugh when electric vehicles won't run in the cold or catch on fire while launching boats or are stuck at the side of the road in a snowstorm and have to be towed 50 miles to the next charging station. That's great. But federal fuel economy standards, which require all those EVs, just priced our next car out of our budget. We shudder when we hear of jackboots arresting a grandmother in a wheelchair because she wrote a letter to the editor. We get angry when we find government misinformation officers colluding with Twitter, Facebook, Amazon, and others to keep us from learning the truth. And we really get PO'd when we see the left trying to twist the law to keep our champion out of the race for president. He's the first president in modern history who actually fought for us. The left let Hillary, Comey, and all their cronies off, but they're coming after our guy? The first thing we have to know is that they are twisting the language to try to make us believe he's guilty. Remember, they hate the true meaning of words. 
So the first thing we hear is that the FBI is raiding Mar-a-Lago. They didn't execute a search warrant. They raided the place. That sounds like the cops had to go over the wall in the face of armed resistance that's shooting at them, which didn't happen. Why would Trump get raided if he wasn't guilty? The FBI did this just for optics. They wanted it to look bad. Next, we hear that Trump has been indicted. Oh, my God, he's guilty. Not. All an indictment says is that the prosecutor told a group of citizens in a secret room enough things to make them think he might be guilty. And a court should hear the case if it's true. Because there's nobody from the defense in the room. And if a defendant who's going to be charged is forced to testify without his attorney to help him be careful, a prosecutor can even lie in his presentation. And as the expression goes, a competent prosecutor can indict a ham sandwich. Now, Trump gets indicted again and again. This is basically a lawfare gang rape using the legal system. Every one of the charges is flaky. In New York, Trump gets charged with defamation when E. Jean Carroll actually published a magazine article accusing him of rape. All Trump did was deny the accusation and suddenly his rights of free speech and defense are flipped around. His New York fraud case has no victim, but the state created a law just to be able to get Trump. So Trump appeals, and now you get the picture where, oh, the media says he's stalling or he's trying to get off on a technicality. But if you read appeals court decisions, there's one universal feature. Most appeals fail. The ones that succeed make it because the lower court flat out screwed the pooch and denied someone a fair trial. And yes, there are bad judges that do that. We are seeing this in New York. Rarely do appeals courts say the facts were wrong. Rather, the lower court was wrong because it didn't allow defense evidence or defense experts in. They just blocked them out and the defense couldn't present their case. As Alina Haba says in the defamation case, the judge wrote our appeal. In the Colorado case, it'll be a question of whether they got the law right. The left is hoping to kill Trump with the death of a thousand legal cuts. But the raw facts are simple. Trump is our champion. He didn't need to run or expose himself to all this risk. He pledged his life, his fortune, and his sacred honor on restoring America, to make America great again. He's the champion of the people. And even if he hadn't run, the left would have to try to kill him, at least figuratively. He's too great an inspiration to the rest of us who need a champion to kill a predatory police state. And that's why every legal blow against him makes us support him even more. After the break, we'll go where the nitty gets gritty. 
And remember AmericaOutloud.news, where you can get articles, podcasts, and pertinent news, always the uncensored truth from a team of truth seekers who always put God and country first. World-class care from doctors you can trust, all from the comfort of your home. That is One Wellness. Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company launched the One Wellness membership to provide free monthly supplements and unlimited telemedicine access with doctors that share your values. The Wellness Company's chief medical board designed every supplement and medical protocol with your health in mind. From groundbreaking supplements like the Spike Support Formula to unique care like freedom from Big Pharma. Join a healthcare system that puts your health and well being above the interest of Big Pharma's bottom line. It's the way healthcare should be with a company that shares your values. Go to OutloudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first month of One Wellness. Asiya believes that inside each of us is the potential to feel and be our very best. Our customers will tell you how our products have made a difference for them, from improving immune health, regulating hormone balance, supporting gut health, to soothing the skin, even reducing the appearance of wrinkles, fine lines, and cellulite, and providing targeted support for mind, mood, energy, and even our body's own production of collagen. Make our breakthrough products an essential step in becoming your best self and fulfilling your greatest potential. ASEA, we power potential. For exclusive savings, use code OUTLOUD to save 15% off your first order today. And we're back with Unleashed. This is Dr. Ted Noel. Remember the AmericaOutloud.shop for the latest health resources and product innovations that may well enhance your life. Use the code OUTLOUD to get special discounts for our America Out Loud family. It's time to review the legal actions against President Trump. And I want to very quickly glance across the two New York cases just so we have those laid out clearly. The E. Jean Carroll case is a simple case of he said, she said, and you have a very, very biased judge who has not allowed evidence into trial. The story basically goes that E. Jean Carroll published an article, I believe in Atlantic Monthly, which said that Donald Trump raped her in Bergdorf Goodman. Uh, department store somewhere in the late 90s or in the 90s. She couldn't remember the year and on cross-examination, she kept changing her story. She said she was wearing a particular dress, which in fact did not exist until after the dates in question. Trump wasn't allowed to present evidence and unsurprisingly, he lost the case. So this will be on appeal. And as Alina Habas said, it's almost certain that this will get wiped out because, frankly, the judge wrote the appeal for Donald Trump. The second case 
is the New York fraud case where the state is accusing Trump of fraud simply for undervaluing properties. There's no victim in the case. They're trying to steal $300 million from his company and ban them from working in New York and so on. And it's under another law that was created specifically to get Trump. So the Carroll case and the New York fraud case are little things that we can leave for now because frankly, they're not a big deal. They sound big and oh my God, he's a rapist. No, he's not. But that's all going to go away, I think. The big deal is the Colorado case, which was heard in the Supreme Court. And frankly, the judges will probably rule eight to one or nine to zip in favor of Trump and wipe out the idea that the states can take a presidential candidate off the ballot. They're just going to get rid of that, at least under the insurrection clause of the 14th Amendment. And there's three basic points here. The first one is the definition of insurrection. Insurrection was the Civil War. And the 14th Amendment is one of the Reconstruction Amendments. And it was drawn up to avoid allowing any former Confederate from gaining enough political power to restart slavery to, you know, basically to overturn the results of the civil war in one way or another. And it was debated a lot. There was a lot going on in it, but the term insurrection was always used in a, this recent insurrection, which was the civil war. It was an armed conflict trying to overthrow the government very clearly fits the definition of insurrection. January 6, at its most accurate description, essentially was a protest that turned into a riot. That's not an insurrection. That's a riot. Nobody says that any part of it was good, but it doesn't meet the definition. However, and this is the big deal, you have a huge line of people on the left saying, oh, yes, it was an insurrection, and they give various legal justifications for their position. You have an equally large number of other people saying, no, it was not an insurrection. And this points out a really key problem legally for that argument. And it's simply the fact that you can't define it, or at least that Congress has not seen fit to define the term. They used it as what's called an understood term. We already know what it means. And the way they understood it had to do with the Civil War. End of story. There is a rule in law called the rule of lenity. And the basic idea is, if you can't properly define the crime, you can't charge the guy with it or convict him of it. The state has to properly define the crime. You have to look at it leniently toward the defendant. And as a result, the rule of lenity would say, because we can't define insurrection in the context of January 6, it's not there. Forget it. 
the next thing we look at is, is the Section 3 prohibition self-enforcing? And again, you've got legal people on both sides of this argument. And the simplest way to look at it is just to read the 14th Amendment and look at Section 5. And it simply says, one or it's two sentence or it's one sentence the congress shall have the power to enforce by appropriate legislation the provisions of this article and there is no insurrection act that is properly applicable to january 6 that's the simple argument there are lots of complicated legal stuff we don't need to bother with the fact is, it's not self-enforcing. And we actually have a case called Griffin's Case, which clearly identifies that. It happened right after the Civil War. And there was a guy named Griffin who was convicted of a murder or of a crime by a judge who had been a Confederate. But the conviction happened before the 14th Amendment was ratified. So this guy goes into court to try to get this overturned, to say you have to throw the judge out and you have to throw the conviction out. Well, uh, Griffin's case said, sorry, this is not self-enforcing. You cannot use this against this guy. And so that is the case that's out there. And the Supreme Court, in their oral arguments, brought that up, raised the question clearly. And there's no question that they thought it was seriously correct. The third part of this is the definition of an officer of the United States. And I've made this point in an article where I go through the grammar and it's basically this. If you talk about an officer, no modifiers, just the word officer, it's the simplest way to describe anyone who holds any position. And it's used over 40 times that way in the Constitution. It just describes somebody who holds a position. When you add a modifier, officer of the United States, you narrow it down considerably. It's like saying, my wife and I both have cars. Now we narrow it down. My wife has a silver car. Well, that narrows it down to the universe of silver cars. And when we look at mine, I say a burgundy Honda, it narrows it down even farther that I have a Honda. It's starting the universe of cars. You bring it down to a Honda, and then you bring it down to that particular color. You begin to see how it narrows things down. So when we look at officer of the United States, the of the United States narrows the description very considerably. And we have three clauses that very clearly describe what an officer of the United States is, and they all talk about 
an officer of the United States as an appointed person. For example, the appointments clause says that the president shall appoint certain people and all other officers of the United States. It is explicit that you have four or five offices and then all other offices. By the way that it works, these are all officers of the United States and they are all appointed by the president. There's no way to get around this grammar. This happens three times in the text of the constitution. So when the 14th amendment was written and it says an officer of the United States and he cannot office, occupy an office under the United States, the president's not included. And just to fill out that under the United States language, that language comes from English law, where the king is the crown. Now, any of you watched the, uh, the TV series, The Crown, the queen was the crown. And there are many times where the expression, you know, we have to do certain things as the crown or whatever. But everybody who serves in the government in England is holding an office under the crown. That same expression comes to America in the office, officer of the United States who serves in an office under the crown. An office is the place or the position. The officer is the person. They are equivalent in that sense. The judges nailed that one down very strongly. So very clearly, it is almost certain that the Supreme Court will rule 8-1 or 9-zip in favor of Donald Trump and wipe out all of the challenges to having him on the ballot based on the insurrection clause. As we go on from that, we now have the case I alluded to in the monologue, the Mar-a-Lago case. And it is also of a part with the January 6th case. Both of them are brought by so-called special prosecutor, Jack Smith. Now, it's really important as we look at this to look at one thing. The special counsel, Jack Smith, occupies a position which does not exist. You heard me correctly. He is a superior officer, and I'm going to read actually from a footnote on the D.C. Court of Appeals ruling denying the idea that Jack Smith should be kicked off. And the reason is very simply. It says Amici, or Amiki, former Attorney General Edwin Meese III and others, these are friends of the court, that's what the word means, argue that the appointment of special counsel Smith is invalid because one, no statute authorizes the position Smith occupies, and two, the special counsel is a principal officer who must be nominated by the president and confirmed by the Senate. So far, this is absolutely 100% correct. He occupies an office that does not exist, and he should be thrown off, but the D.C. court dodged 
they said, we lack jurisdiction to consider things that weren't raised at the lower court. You can't bring in new stuff. And in this, this is a flat out dodge simply because the court has something called sua sponte authority. It can raise it on its own motion. But when you look at the three judges, you've got two appointed by Obama or, or um, Biden, I believe. And you got one appointed by Bush the elder, who is almost certainly a swampy person. And so they chose not to do the court's own motion, the sua sponte approach. And so they said, we're not even going to decide this. And then they went and looked at the argument on presidential immunity. Now, the argument that Trump raises is simply that as president, he has to have a whole range of things that are okay for him to do that he cannot be challenged on legally later on. That's called the outer perimeter of his lawful authority. And the D.C. court says in the civil context, the Supreme Court has explained that a former president is absolutely immune from civil liability for his official acts, defined to include any conduct falling within the outer perimeter of his official responsibility. Both sitting and former presidents remain civilly liable for private conduct that's outside of the responsibility. So, for example, when uh, Paula Jones was slandered by Bill Clinton, ultimately he ended up paying a civil judgment because this wasn't within his presidential authorities. But then they totally screw the pooch again on this. That they say that Article Three courts do have the power to review presidential official acts, which is true, but they do not stand up clearly. They come up with a very muddy case which says that separate and this is the way they put it properly understood the separation of powers doctrine may immunize lawful discretionary acts but does not bar the federal criminal prosecution of a former president for every official act and they are flat wrong on this now i figured they would go somewhere like this but the real reason that the court ultimately says go back to the lower court and they're right on this is that you have to have a trier of fact. That's the first level court that looks at what he did to see if it was inside the perimeter or outside. Was it, was it conceivably his official responsibility or was it something outside that perimeter? And if he does a criminal act, it would be outside the perimeter. You know, he's not allowed to do criminal things, even though he's sitting at the resolute desk. So when you look at those things, it's proper for the lower court to hear it. The problem we have is that they decline to establish a real criterion. And this is why Trump 
must appeal. He's already given notice of appeal and why the Supreme Court should narrow things down rather dramatically. But along the way, there's more he should do. And we'll talk about that in the context of the Florida case. When he appeals, he must say, look, this court must define that every act that is within the official perimeter is immune from criminal prosecution. Only criminal acts that are outside, by definition, of his perimeter of authority can properly be prosecuted. It's a really simple question. And then you have to also establish a standard of review which says that all of this must be construed against the prosecution because the president must have the ability to act freely without somebody second-guessing him in court on every little thing that he does. Okay, So this will go to the Supreme Court. And hopefully he will ask for those things. But he has got one more case, and this is the Florida case. I'm not going to talk about the Georgia case. That's a free speech case. The Georgia case, excuse me, the Florida case, the Mar-a-Lago case, has the same special counsel occupying a position that does not exist. All of the uh, actions in the D.C. case, the January 6th case, have been stayed until the court opens and says, okay, we will receive motions. And once they do that, Trump should take this amicus motion and drop it into his complaint. And the court then would have to deal with it at the trial level. But he can do the same thing in Florida. And if he goes down to Florida, he's got a judge in Alien Cannon who actually looks at the law. And there's a pretty good chance that if he made that pleading, that motion in Florida, that Jack Smith is not actually holding an office under the government. He's not legally appointed. Something interesting happens. Every action Jack Smith has taken becomes fruit of the poisonous tree. Now, let me explain this. We're all familiar with TV shows where the cops read somebody their rights. This comes out of a case called Miranda versus Arizona in the 1960s. And basically what it says is under the Fifth Amendment privilege against self-incrimination. You have to be made aware that you have the right not to incriminate yourself. And so you have to have your rights read. Well, all evidence has to match similar rules. It has to be gathered properly. If you have an improper search warrant, that evidence can be thrown out because you grabbed things you weren't allowed to have. And in this case, because Jack Smith is not properly an officer of the United States. He's not properly a special counsel. Robert Hur was a special counsel because he was a U.S. attorney who was just given extra jobs. Jack Smith was a private citizen when he was appointed. 
And Merrick Garland has no authority to appoint him. So when we look at this, Jack Smith had no right to look at anything. So everything Jack Smith touched is tainted and must be thrown out. That means the entire Mar-a-Lago case goes up in smoke. And it also means that the entire January 6th case goes up in smoke because Jack Smith is not legally authorized to look at any of that stuff, to do anything, to bring indictments, and he brought both indictments. They must be quashed. And this will make the left scream, but this is what needs to happen. In order for justice to prevail in these cases. Now, when we come back, we're going to look at some cases or some news that you haven't seen reported to speak of in the United States. In the meantime, remember to spread the news about America Out Loud articles and podcasts. Become active patriots who make a difference. Let's do everything we can to keep the truth alive. Many voices, one freedom, united in the First Amendment. Our goal is to herald the voice of genuine liberty at AmericaOutloud.news, a place where you'll find the naked truth expressed with a patriotic heart. Now is our time, my fellow Americans. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all. You've all heard Dr. McCullough and others share over and over the value of keeping your sinuses cleansed. It's a smart move all year, but even more so when we're cooped up inside. It's not really open for debate any longer. Those that live smart and live well pay attention to nasal and oral hygiene. Cofix RX has just the tools for the job with our nasal and throat cleanse. Click the Cofix RX banner on AmericaOutloud.shop to get 20% off your entire order. That's right, AmericaOutloud.shop. Use coupon code OUTLOUD. That's coupon code OUTLOUD for 20% off your entire order. Use Cofix RX because it works. The buildup of spike proteins is dangerous to your health. Global Healing's Foreign Protein Cleanse detoxes your body, removing the spike proteins, allowing your body to repair from within. Formulated by Dr. Edward Group and by Dr. Brian Artis, Foreign Protein Cleanse targets and detoxes spike proteins in the body. Go to americaoutloud.shop and get 15% off using the code OUTLOUD. Global healing, giving you the power to take control of your health naturally. Welcome back to Unleashed. And this is the news you haven't heard segment. And I'm going to talk about one specific story. It's been reported by a young lady named Eva Vlardingerbrook. I hope I pronounced her name right. If you go to X, you'll find her on at 
E-V-A-V-L-A-A-R. Fortunately, she didn't make a spell the tail end of her name. She has been reporting on the environmental movement in Europe. And she's a Dutch lady, so she starts with the stuff in Holland. And it turns out that the European Union has been trying to impose all kinds of environmental laws. And let's just start with the issues. The first one is carbon dioxide. Of course, you've heard lots about that. We'll talk about it again. But carbon dioxide is essential for plant life. If we were to cut our current carbon dioxide level in half, every plant on the face of the earth would die. It would be gone. No question. They have to have it. If we double the concentration, deserts will bloom because plants won't need as much water and they'll be able to creep in from the edges and grow into the deserts. So that would be a good thing. But they say that the 40 parts per million in our atmosphere of carbon dioxide is actually way too high. We have to get rid of it. Well, I happen to have a very large computer screen, it's a 46, and I use Windows. Sorry about you guys who are on uh, Apples, but I'm going to use the Windows illustration so you can see what's going on. Down in the bottom right part of the screen, or the bottom of it, there is a, uh, a quick access toolbar, it's called, and it's, you know, maybe in my screen, it's maybe an inch tall. And over in the right-hand side, you have a few icons that talk about the speakers, your internet connection, and other odds and ends. And that is a status bar. And the entire size of that status bar is maybe the size of my thumb. Now, compare that to my 46-inch screen. How much light is that going to take away? from my 46 inch screen? The answer is basically none. And this is exactly the story with carbon dioxide. Now, Dr. Robert Spencer at the University of Alabama in Huntsville has pointed out that if we were to double our carbon dioxide levels, there is some fairly good scientific evidence or consensus that the, the temperature of the earth might warm about one degree centigrade. But then he goes on to point something else out. Carbon dioxide is a pretty poor greenhouse gas. And the reason is simply it's just too little of it. You send an infrared photon to one of those carbon dioxide molecules, it absorbs it, and then it re-radiates it in all directions. So it does stop a little bit, but not much. Most of it goes straight out to space. And if you want to see how really well it works to keep the heat, go out to the desert areas of New Mexico or uh, Arizona or someplace up around the Grand Canyon maybe, and look at the temperature or notice the temperature, I should say, in the middle of the day in summer. If there are no clouds, it will be hot and you will be in minimal clothing to avoid being too hot, and you're wearing a hat to keep the sun off of you, and so on. When it gets dark, it gets cold. 
all of that heat radiates out into empty space quickly. Does carbon dioxide do much to stop it? No. You really have a hard time measuring the, any effect from that carbon dioxide. And this is a simple experiment anybody can do. But Robert Spencer's discussion has to do with, guess what? There are some other greenhouse gases. And the one we really have to look at is water. Now, water very easily at ordinary temperatures evaporates. And water vapor is not particularly visible until it gets up high and we reaches something called the dew point where it condenses out as clouds. And guess what? Clouds are really good greenhouse agents. If you fly above a cloud on an airliner in any kind of airplane, you will see the tops of them are white by and large. They reflect back sunlight. And so now let's do the same experiment in the desert on an overcast day. We did have temperatures possibly over 100 degrees in the daytime going down even to freezing at night in the summertime. But if you cover the area with clouds, the temperature varies a little bit, but not very much. And this is an experiment you can do at home. You don't even have to go out west. Go outside when there's clouds everywhere. I mean, no, can't see any blue sky. And look at the weather report. The temperature doesn't go up or down much. Why? Clouds are really good greenhouse gases. And they reflect heat in both directions. Heat radiated up from the, from the ground hits the clouds and radiates back down. Heat from the sun hits the top of the clouds and radiates back into space. That's called albedo or reflectivity of the earth. And CO2, if it raised the temperature one degree, would make it so that water would evaporate from the oceans more easily. And remember, on the order of 70% of the earth is covered with water. So, you're likely to get more clouds, which would reflect away more heat, which might mean that we don't even see the temperature go up half a degree. We don't know. The physicists who are trying to discuss cloud dynamics and figure out how that's going to work out can only tell us that it's complicated. They can't give us any real answers. Now, in the middle of this, we have methane and ammonia, which both reflect a little bit more infrared than the, car than the carbon dioxide does, but a whole lot less than clouds do. Well, these people in the EU have said carbon dioxide, methane, and ammonia are the culprits in global warming, ignoring the fact that if the globe were to warm, we'd probably get more clouds, which would cool us. They're not letting anyone understand that we have a divine design in the earth that keeps things well-ordered. It makes it so we can live. If we didn't have 70% of the earth covered by water, temperature variation would go up and down quite a lot. You know, in any case, these bureaucrats, in Europe, and we're going to talk about the law of the bureaucrat as this show goes on. 
uh, these bureaucrats set up rules where farmers are going to have to get rid of 30% of their livestock because livestock fart releasing methane. And methane is going to warm the earth and it's an existential threat. Oh my goodness. It's nothing of the sort. It's a scientific anomaly at most. And it certainly isn't the problem they think it is. Remember, back in the 1970s, the scientists were all worried about a coming ice age. Now they're all worried about us cooking to death. Neither one of those things is going to happen. So when we look at the science, the science, so far as we have it today, does not support doing anything to mitigate climate change. Because frankly, man's contribution to it is so small as to be trivial. And if we're going to do things that have to do with things in our environment, yeah, we've done some good things by reducing various oxides of nitrogen in the exhaust and so on. And places that have trapped air like Los Angeles no longer have the horrible purple-brown cloud that they used to have living over them. So there are good things. And, you know, dumping raw sewage into rivers wasn't a good idea, and we've learned how to do that and take care of trash. So environmentally, there are some good things. But what they said was, no, all the farmers are going to have to get rid of 30% of their cattle, you know, all their livestock. Well, they can't survive. So who's going to feed Europe? And they said, oh, by the way, you can't use certain we're going to cut back on the amount of gasoline or you can use in your tractors or diesel, whichever it is. Well, they can't handle their fields without their tractors. And they said, Oh, by the way, you're not going to be able to use fertilizer because it releases ammonia as part of the nitrogen in the, the fertilizer, you know, ammonium nitrate is one of the big fertilizers. You can't have it. And the farmers all said, this is not going to work. And so it started in the Netherlands where the farmers had a tractor march on the capital and they bollocked everything up. They plugged up the roads. Did you hear about that on your news here? Eh, I didn't think so. But the farmers basically said, your rules will destroy farming in Europe. And if we aren't here, you don't eat. And apparently, they got the attention of some people. Holland kind of backed off a little bit, but the EU in general was saying, no, we're going to keep it, we're going to keep it. And then the protests spread. Germany got clogged. And, you know, other places got messed up because the farmers drove their tractors into town and made it so that nobody could move. You can't push a tractor out of the way with a police car like you might be able to push another car out of the way. You have to bring heavy equipment in because tractors, frankly, are heavy. They're big boys. And when you've got thousands of them totally clogging every road in and out of the city, you get people's attention. And people started to realize that we're not going to be able to push this on people. I don't think that the bureaucrats were, shall we say, perceptive enough to realize that their idea was wrong. 
all they really realized was that the farmers didn't like it. Well, then they put out roadblocks. The cops set out cars blocking the road. What they forgot is the tractors are designed to drive through fields. So what did the tractors do? They drove through the fields and right around the roadblocks. You know, it's a muddy field. Who cares? Tractors have those monster tires with the big cleats on them. We go, we don't even notice the mud. And they just kept on going. And the, what are the cops going to do? Are they going to shoot somebody for driving? No. Ultimately, they shut down enough of Europe in enough places that the powers that be said, uh, we stepped on the wrong toe. We better back off. And so what they did was they got rid of their restrictions. As a matter of fact, they allowed the farmers to increase their use of fertilizer by 30%. So this is all quiet for now. But did you hear about it in America? You might have. But I don't think that you heard very much about it. These protests just didn't raise the alarm here. Instead, we have media and Democrats who hate science. You may have Anthony Fauci claiming, I am science, but they actually hate science, and they don't want to understand that science is not an answer. It's a method, and it depends on us testing questions. We believe that something is real. For example, we believe that carbon, rising carbon dioxide levels will warm the planet, and we believe it will happen by this much, and we develop a computer model that will demonstrate how much it's going to go up. Well, the scientific method now says, okay, you have this computer model. You have presented an hypothesis. Let's test it. And you look at that computer model against what really happens. The answer is the computer model's wrong. You have to throw it out. And every computer model on global warming based on carbon dioxide has been wrong. That means that we really should be taking that in whole idea and questioning it, probably throwing it out and come back to the idea that the earth actually has a thermostat. Now, let's think about the thermostat in your house. You set it at, let's say in the summertime, you're going to cool down to 76 degrees. You can tolerate 76, cool enough. And so you set it at 76. And what will happen is that your air conditioner will run until you get down to 76 degrees. Then it will shut off. Heat comes in from the outside. And after a while, you get up around 77 degrees. The air conditioner kicks back on takes it back down to 76, you have a small fluctuation. What we are almost certainly seeing with the temperature of the earth is that the earth has a thermostat. And that thermostat is built on the thermal output of the sun, the sun's distance from the earth, the amount of water surface area on the earth, and then is modulated by clouds. Clouds are almost certainly the biggest part of the Earth's 
thermostat. As a result, when the earth warms up, we evaporate more water, the clouds cover more area, and then heat reflects away. The earth cools down. We've talked about how this happens. But the people who want to control your life insist on talking about settled science when that is not a valid concept. So, until next time, this is Dr. Ted Noel. Remember, it's the message that matters. Let's unleash the truth.